the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Yeah, it was a coup attempt by the FBI with the Russian inclusion investigation. Yeah, it was an attempt by the FBI to take out a sitting president. They knew it was a sham from the beginning, but it's no big deal. Let's uh, talk about uh, what LeBron James tweeted about the Breonna Taylor matter or something like something really important. Catherine Herridge, who is an excellent reporter, she was excellent at Fox. She remains excellent at CBS, had the story. The story is that Christopher Steele's main source for the dossier, he was the subject of a two-year-long FBI counterintelligence investigation from 2009 to 2011 under suspicion of being a Russian spy. So I'm sorry, who was colluding with Russia? And a threat to national security. This is Christopher Steele of Steele dossier infamy, his main source, a suspected Russian spy that was under a two-year-long FBI counterintelligence investigation. Kimberly Strassel over the Wall Street Journal, who's been excellent on this and so many other topics as well, she's better than I am at communicating this, so I'm going to use her words. She did a nice Twitter thread for ease of purpose. You should check it out. I retweeted it. Early in the Obama administration, the subsource, quote, reportedly attempted to recruit two individuals connected to an influential foreign policy advisor to Obama, said that if they got jobs in the administration and access to classified information, he could help them, quote, make a little extra money, unquote. FBI says he had previously contact with the Russian embassy and Russian intelligence officers. Here's the real kicker. Per the documents now out from Lindsey Graham, the uh, FBI knew about this prior counterintelligence investigation into the source in December of 2016, So the FBI knew it was relying on information from a suspected Russian spy that was the main source of Christopher Steele, the former British spy who cobbled together the dossier, which they also knew contained uncorroborated information that they didn't convey to the court in getting warrants to surveil Carter Page and so on and so forth. I mean, just it's just one thing compounds the other. Strassel continued, the same FBI said to be concerned about Russian interference in election was using information from a suspected Russian spy to probe a presidential campaign. The same FBI claiming Carter Page, a Russian agent, was making that case based on info from a suspected Russian agent. Most importantly, it never told the FISA court about this counterintelligence investigation into this steel source. It withheld that information, continued re-upping its applications to surveil Page and the campaign. It vouched for information supplied by a suspected Russian agent. So they're accusing Trump of colluding with suspected Russian operatives while they are colluding with Russian operatives. The name of the subsource and the realization of the FBI's prior suspicions should have ended the entire probe. Instead, the FBI doubled down, hid things from the court, kept going. This again raises the urgent need to know who knew what and when. 
writes Strassel. And people wonder why Durham is looking into all this. Also, extra credit question. Wasn't it Mueller's job to find sources of Russian disinformation? How do you miss the guy potentially feeding it directly to the FBI? un believable It was a coup attempt on the president of the United States. That's sort of a dangerous precedent to set, I think I could say, as in the context of making a vast understatement. For more on this and a couple other topics, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend Brett Baer, who had Kim Strassel on his show yesterday. I watched that. It was very good. Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, a special report, number one bestselling author of Three Days at the Brink, FDR's daring gamble to win World War II. Brett, thanks for joining us. Maybe uh, this could be a topic of conversation in Tuesday's debate. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's really an interesting question, and I don't know where Chris Wallace is, but who knows? I think so. Listen, the real analysis here is there's going to be a lot of stuff, I think, that starts to come free, and whether the flow of information is totally digested. First of all, you have the fact that, you know, look at this Senate report on Hunter Biden. There was all kinds of analysis or allegations that it was political and biased and all of that, but there were some networks that never even mentioned it. Not once didn't even mention that it happened, that what the results were. So expect that kind of coverage to this. I'm happy Catherine did it. I know that the documents came out late last night, so she got it maybe a couple hours early, and she's a good reporter. But it's rare to break through on this particular topic, in part because some of these networks spent day after day, hour after hour, on the Russian story. And now to rewind and kind of tell the story differently is going to be really tough for them. Just on this, too, because, again, the commitment that Attorney General Barr made was that Americans will know what happened in 2016 into 2017 before November 3rd. So this is a start. And I I hear what you're saying when you think things are going to start breaking free. But there's reports that, you know, Durham is now looking into Clinton Foundation activities, perhaps particularly with the the sale of Uranium One you know, going in the, the way back machine, it seems. That's straight about he's, he's looking into it. I mean, you, you're on a 40-day clock now. This has to all yeah. be tied together and presented in some sort of form pretty soon for, as you say, just to give people time to digest it and discuss it, much less, you know, understand it, ask questions, have it filter into the presidential conversation. No, I agree with you. I think the misinterpretation there on that reporting is that he's looking into it. He's really absorbed the other attorney's work that was already done that never was presented. And I think that they're bringing all of that together into one big package. I'm hoping to have the attorney general on when all of this breaks and literally give him every question in the book about all of these elements and just use our time that way and and hopefully be instructive. I have no doubt it will be, as your last interview with Attorney General Barr was. Speaking of Hunter Biden, I mean, a lot of this in the uh, report uh, that was issued by uh, Senators Johnson and Grassley for a year-long investigation, I mean, a lot of this sort of confirms what we suspected was true about Hunter Biden seeming to fly in formation with where his dad was riding point for the Obama administration on policy, like in Ukraine and China. But there are some details, and it's always nice to have evidence to support what you believe is true, and this provides some of the evidence, including payments from the from the wife of the former mayor of Moscow, $3.5 million, and sort of assertions about Hunter Biden paying non-resident women who were nationals of Russia or other Eastern European countries who appear to be linked to Eastern European prostitution and human trafficking rings. I mean, there's there's so much here to dig into, but 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 it seems like it's, again, one of these stories of uh, 
where what we're accusing President Trump of, we're actually doing. And so that's our way to provide cover for what we're doing is to accuse him of doing it. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of meat in here um, and we've been digging into it and reporting it. Um, The you know, because of the allegations against Johnson and and all of the storm about, you know, this is, you know, a a one-sided political hack job. uh, There are just some places that discounted it out out of hand. But if you look deep into it, uh, there are things that are not disputable. And there are things that go to bank records and things that go to testimony under oath and things that go to um, a lot of uh, elements that never came up in the whole uh, impeachment mess. And, uh, you know, where are the, all those emoluments clause hawks that uh, were around when it's uh, when it's Trump and Trump's kids and what they're doing? And that's fine. Go ahead. Uh, investigate Trump and Trump and his kids. Make sure they're not profiteering off of their father because of his public position. But the same goes here for Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and, and Joe Biden's brother as well, who's folded into this. It's not just Hunter. If you're going to Listen, if you're going to do it across the board, you have to do it fairly. And um, and that's just not happening. And, you know, I think people see that. I think um, and and how much it makes a difference. I'm not sure. I mean, I think it this all these things coming out scratches the itch of a of a base that believe that and followed it all along. Um, I think that there may swing a few independents that say this is really screwy that this is happening. Uh, for, for the most part, it's going to get ignored, and that's the frustration of all of these investigations. I want to get your take on uh, one more topic, this uh, AP poll out that finds 44 percent of Americans disapprove of the uh, protests in response to police violence, 39 percent approve. That's uh, down sub- somewhat substantially when a majority of Americans approved in June. It seems like the uh, violence that's been attended to some of these protests is starting to uh, 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 starting to generate a, a loss of favor among the larger populace for these uh, these efforts uh, in the, under the guise of police reform. Yeah, I think that that's, uh, people are getting tired tired of it, and they they through some of it that at least some of it is organized. I mean, some of it is peaceful protest, but some of it is being you know helped, organized, uh, structured, and that's. Um, becoming more and more relevant as you go around these different cities. I think it's going to be a significant part of the election. I know Chris is going to ask about all of that. It's already one of his topics Mm -hmm. and expect uh, that to be a big part of Tuesday. He is Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, special report, 5 p.m. weekdays, Chicago time, and the number one best-selling author of Three Days at the Brink, FDR's Darian Gamble to win World War II. Thanks for joining us. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Well, per our discussion uh, last segment with Brett Baer, golly, why would the president think that uh, an election could be something less than honest in these uh, Democrat-controlled states? The same uh, element that attempted a coup to remove him from office for the first couple years of his presidency, as we were just discussing with Brett Baer per 
this Catherine Herridge report, the documents released by Lindsey Graham. I mean, it's just remarkable. It's just remarkable. He's the destabilizing influence. I mean, he is in a sense in terms of he's destabilizing the political ruling classes stasis inside the beltway. But in terms of who's destabilizing confidence in the representative Republican form of government we've come to know and love. It's really President Trump by playing games with the press to say, you know, we'll see what happens in terms of what I accept or what I don't accept or how I react or how I don't react, because I these issues I'm raising are serious issues. And I'm going to continue to tweak you in order to draw people's attention to these issues, which is what he did again yesterday, asked before he jetted off for a rally of supporters in Jacksonville, Florida, about his commitment to accept the election results if they go against him. Mr. President, are the election results only legitimate if you win? So uh, we have to be very careful with the ballots. The ballots, that's a whole big scam. You know, they found, I understand, eight ballots in a uh, waste paper basket in some location. Uh, They found, uh, it was reported in one of the newspapers that they found a lot of ballots in a river. Uh, they throw them out if they have the name Trump on it, I guess, but they had ballots. They had no names on them. They okay, well, they still found them in a river, whether they had a name on it or not. But uh, the other ones had the Trump name on it, and they were thrown into a waste paper basket. We want to make sure the election is honest, and I'm not sure that it can be. I don't, I don't know that it can be with this whole situation. Unsolicited ballots. There are unsolicited millions being sent to everybody, and we'll see. But... Uh, If you remember, Hillary Clinton just a week ago or so told Joe Biden, do not accept the results of the election under any circumstances. But you don't ask her that question. You only ask me the question. Yeah, of course he does. Uh, Yeah, this uh, the uh, sending out the unsolicited ballot applications. I mean, this turns this is like uh, the uh, the old Scantron way of voting for the MLB All-Star team. When you show up to the park or you get a bunch of the Scantron cards at the at a a shop that sells baseball cards or what have you. I mean, that's what it feels like to me Uh, as it pertains to the reference to the ballots that were discarded and recovered. U.S. Attorney's Office, Middle District of Pennsylvania, issued an updated statement yesterday regarding the discovery of discarded military mail and ballots in Lucerne County, Pennsylvania, that were cast for Trump. Of the nine ballots that were discarded and then recovered, seven were cast for Trump. Two of the discarded ballots have been resealed inside their appropriate envelopes by Lucerne election staff prior to recovery by the FBI. The contents of those two ballots are therefore unknown. So again, it's seven military ballots, but it speaks to a vulnerability in the system. It speaks to possible whatever that vulnerability is, whether it's a a human error or it's a systems issue or whatever it is. Um, And it's just seven ballots. So, you know, there's going to be a margin of error, military ballots. I think it's a big thing to disenfranchise a member to disenfranchise any American is a big thing. And it's a particularly big thing to disenfranchise people who are serving our country in uniform. Don't you think? It'd be nice if we took this a little bit more seriously and those on the left did too, rather than this willy-nilly approach to a mail-in voting because the left believes it will ultimately be advantageous to them. And it may ultimately not be advantageous to them. You know, this whole idea of who accepts what outcome, as the president was saying, Hillary Clinton telling Joe Biden, don't concede, even if it appears you've been defeated, because we'll have this opportunity for counting to go on. Well, if the courts at, uh, in some states have their way, you know, well into uh, mid-November. And so the red mirage scenario. So then it becomes a matter of, well, who's challenging what? There would perhaps be a fight first initiated by Democrats for mail-in ballots 
that were spoiled, that were not going to be counted, because we know historically that a lot more mail-in ballots are spoiled than are in-person ballots because there's just more moving parts to the mail-in ballot. There's more likelihood for error, missing information, what have you. There's more possibility for spoilage. And so then it becomes a fight, depending on the margin of victory in a particular jurisdiction within a particular state of what gets counted and what doesn't. So for all this, who's going to accept the results with uh, so much on the back end through the count and counts being extended in places like Michigan and Wisconsin and Georgia, North Carolina officials announcing a settlement this week, tabulating tardy ballots through November 12th, nine days after the election. Minnesota is under a similar consent decree. As I said about mail-in voting from the beginning, it could end up being Democrats hoist by their own petard with this. But that doesn't mitigate the real concerns that President Trump is raising and many others, including election law experts, about this approach that's being taken. And some Republicans um, are litigating the matter, too. It's not just in one direction. In Minnesota, uh, Republicans have some Republican legislators have challenged two Republican, two Minnesota Republicans went to federal court to challenge the consent deal that allows Minnesotans to tabulate tardy ballots through November 12th, arguing that um, the at minimum, the, the, the extension to the 12th creates substantial uncertainty and delay over Minnesota's ability to certify its results. And um, at, uh, at at maximum, uh, it suggests that uh, the, the lawsuit does persons in Minnesota may be able to vote for days after Election Day. What's the point of an Election Day then, I suppose? You have an election range, not an Election Day. Um, and so so this becomes a real thing. And, you know, the whole Trump is going to try to install himself for life. I mean, this is just silliness in histrionics. The Wall Street Journal has it right. President Trump's insistence on saying the opposite of whatever the press demands is a source of more than a little of his political success and they say, as well as many of his self-defeating blunders, uh, they uh, call this gamesmanship with respect to accepting the results. If we have an honest election, Kaylee McEnany uh, saying the same thing later in the day during her press briefing. The president will accept the results of a free and fair election. You know, that free and fair election uh, qualifier. Well, again, you're going I'm going to accept the results uh, with the qualification that if I think there's anything uh, unusual about the results, troubling about the results in any particular area, then I will avail myself of my rights under the law to challenge ballots that were counted or not counted. I mean, who knows, you know, depending on the outcome, depending on the administration of the elections in particular jurisdictions that may be impactful on the ultimate outcome, I'll avail my rights under the law. That's all he's really saying. Uh, and you know, the moral panic that ensues from the D.C. press corps speaks more to, to them than it does to him as the legitimacy of this election has been undermined by any number of statements that McEnany read from Democrats who suggest there is no honest way that Trump can win. So by definition, they're saying if Trump wins, the election's illegitimate, not to mention the war gaming that was done at the Transition Integrity Project, which we've spent a good deal of time on. And how quickly John Podesta, playing the role of uh, Biden campaign chairman, has uh, states lining up to secede if they're not uh, granted particular demands in order to concede the election to Trump, which he won, won fairly in one scenario. So gamesmanship and a lot of questions and concerns surrounding the administration of the election 
and the counting of ballots. And it just gets more muddled when you have courts tweaking the timelines within the last 60 days of Election Day. This is Dan Proffitt. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. There were a lot of great speeches at the Republican National Convention this year, but uh, none were more personal, more poignant, or more salient than Ann Dorn's. She is the wife of slain St. Louis Police Captain David Dorn at the convention. She uh, said this. I relive that horror in my mind every single day. My hope is that having you relive it with me now will help shake this country from this nightmare we are witnessing in our cities and bring about positive, peaceful change. How do we get to this point where so many young people are callous and indifferent towards human life? This isn't a video game where you can commit mayhem and then just hit reset and bring all the characters back to life. David is never, never coming back to me. He was murdered by people who didn't know and just didn't care. He would have done anything to help them. Violence and destruction are not legitimate forms of protest. They do not safeguard black lives. They only destroy them. President Trump understands this, has offered federal help to restore order in our communities. In a time when police departments are short on resources and manpower, we need that help. We should accept that help. We must heal before we can affect change. But we cannot heal amid devastation and chaos. President Trump knows we need more Davids in our communities, not fewer. We need to come together in peace and remember that every life is precious. For uh, more on the topic of policing and violence, because unfortunately, Ann Dorn's words have not been heeded in places like Louisville, where two police officers were shot the other night, including a black police officer. Thankfully, both of those officers will survive. Nonetheless, uh, we're pleased to be joined by Ann Dorn, the widow of retired police captain David Dorn, killed by looters in St. Louis in early June. Ann Dorn, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Good morning. Morning. Uh, very sorry for your loss, your family's loss, um, and uh, and thankful that you and your family were able to share your words with the nation at the Republican National Convention and in your presence there, too, not just you, but your family as well, was really powerful. Uh, I, I wonder how, you know, you see things proceeding from uh, the time you delivered the speech just a few weeks ago to now, you know, what we're seeing on the streets still, whether it's a uh, uh, in response to Breonna Taylor or just a continuation of lawlessness in the streets as a matter of course in places like Seattle and Portland? I believe it's just a continuance. Uh, Breonna is just an excuse for them to use. Um, every time something happens, they're just not happy. You know, there was a there was a conviction of some sort, but they're, they're never going to get what they want. There's an agenda there and they're just going to continue to protest. And, in, um, and, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but in St. Louis, too, I mean, uh, there's a report in the Post-Dispatch this week. St. Louis is tracking for a historic uh, number of murders in, in, your, in your community, your hometown. And, and I wonder what's happening on the ground there in the wake of your husband's killing. 
Yeah, unfortunately, we've just hit 200 homicides as of yesterday. It's um, unprecedented, and um, I'm not sure. You know, I don't know what's happening. Um, It's just complete lawlessness out there. What's been the response uh, locally from the uh, civilian political leaders, the mayor on down, in terms of, I mean, did, 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 did David's death sort of bring home the need for a police presence, the need for a commitment to provide for people's safety in St. Louis? I mean, obviously those numbers are suggesting that's not happening, but do, do you think there has been an at least the effort being extended by those in charge? Within the police department, yes. Others, I don't believe so, no. And, and and what do what do they say? What's the what's the response? What's that interaction? I mean, we see it in Chicago and, and you see it around the country. But so, but but in St. Louis, is there something particular that strikes you? Um, I'm not having any interactions with them at all. That's what's kind of funny um, or not funny at all. But I've, I've not had any interactions with um, with any of them except for within the police department, just because I am employed there. So other than that, um I don't know. They're they they each trying to come up with some kind of solution, and but they're not really explaining their solutions to anybody, so nobody understands what they're trying to do. How long have you worked at the uh, St. Louis Police Department? I am a police sergeant. I've been there for twenty seven years. How did your colleagues in the uh, police department uh, react to the news of your husband's death? Oh, they're just devastated. David was a leader within our agency. He um, was a mentor to so many. It didn't matter your race. It didn't matter your orientation your background. If you needed help and you came to David, he helped you. So he touched so many lives within our agency. And even ones that didn't know him still knew who he was, the legend that he was. They're devastated. A piece of our family has been removed. And not just my personal family, the whole department's family. When we come back with Ann Dorn, uh, the wife of slain St. Louis Police Captain David Dorn, I want to touch on Operation Legend and um, get your take, uh, Ms. Dorn, on uh, its impact uh, from your perspective as a law enforcement officer. More with Ann Dorn right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Ann Dorn, and I wanted to uh, get your assessment of Operation Legend, the uh, federal effort to help cities combat violent crime. As a law enforcement officer yourself, more than 3,500 arrests have been made, about 815 of them federal under Operation Legend, which includes St. Louis. 200 of the total arrests involve homicide cases, and uh, of the 815 federal prosecutions, more than 440 charge firearm crimes, 300 involve drug crimes. Has, has the federal uh, support through Operation Legend, has that been something that at least has helped, even if on the margins in uh, in St. Louis? Uh, I believe so. I mean, it's, it's taking some of those violent people off the street right now. Um, there, I mean, there's other people out there just picking up the slack. And, you know, our problem in our community is people's solution to everything is just shoot another person. It's not, There's no talking. There's no communications. It's just, if I don't agree with you, I'm just going to shoot you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have to figure out where we got to that point. Why can't someone have their own personal opinion and it not resort to violence? How do you receive the uh, the treatments you see and maybe you've received uh, police officers, particularly all police officers, but particularly black officers getting from the those who are protesting and, and rioting and, and engaged in violence? 
but we saw it in Louisville over the last couple of days. We've seen it in other cities where these um, uh, Jacobin thugs get right up into the face, particularly of black police officers, and are essentially saying, you're a black police officer, you're a sellout, and other such epithets. It's so unfortunate that they just can't talk to someone just because, like I said, it's a difference of opinion or, you know, these officers choose a career and there's a reason behind it. They, you know, it's a lifelong dream of theirs or it's just a mission. It's something, it's some conviction in their heart that they have to do. And for people to judge them just because of the uniform they're wearing is so unfair. Um, you know, a lot of the officers support the injustices happening out there. I mean, we don't support the injustice, but we support the fact that we understand there's are injustices out there and mm-hmm. that, yes, you know, there are bad policemen, just like there's bad doctors and bad lawyers and bad teachers, you know, and they need to be weeded out. You know, we're, there's one, you know, in a thousand out there that may be bad and it will help weed them out. You know, there's not that there's not that silence anymore. If we see something, we're you know, we speak up. If somebody's doing something we know is doing wrong. Speaking at the RNC was just an opportunity to a, a platform to tell your story and to, to deliver the same message you're delivering now, I, I presume. Exactly. Um, the Republican Party gave me a platform to speak on and I took it. No one else gave me that opportunity. You know, um, even my husband said, you know, hey, if someone gives you that opportunity and it's national, you take it. You always respect the office. You don't necessarily have to respect the person. And I'm not saying I don't respect President Trump. I do because he has a very, very hard job. But I was given that opportunity to have a message. And and in my heart, I have a message. You know, they took my husband away and I can't let this message die with him. Hmm. You know, St. Louis, since you know it so well. um, What what would you like to see happen in St. Louis? What's one or two things that could happen that may improve the situation there and and perhaps then could be replicated in other communities uh, that have the same problem, if not worse. I've worked in the community for so long. They want to be heard. What we have to do in the city is we have to weed out the people who don't belong here, the the people who don't live here, the protesters coming and the protesters coming in town from everywhere. They need to go. We need to sit down with our citizens um, and talk. And if it's the politicians, if it's me sitting down and talking to them, And just they have to be heard. What, you know, what are their complaints and what are their issues? And let's see what we can do to address them together. Or is it just their opinion and we agree to disagree and they understand that? Um, Just some people just want to be heard. And but destroying a city and burning down things and attacking people is not the way to do it. You're not going to be heard. People are just going to turn you off. Mm hmm. Will you be attending the proceedings, the legal proceedings for your husband's killer? Oh, I'll be at every one of them. If you could say anything to uh, David's killer, what would you say to him? Um, he took a great man away. Um, he would have helped you. You know, um, it wasn't worth it over a stolen TV. A stolen TV. He used stolen TV. Um what I really want to say, I can't say in court or on the radio. <laughs> mm, yeah, I think we get that. Um, you know, I mean, just thinking about uh, Ferguson, Missouri, too, and what happened to Ferguson, Missouri. And there's a, a documentary forthcoming by Shelby Steele and his son, Eli Steele, on the topic. It, 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 you know, you talk about these people uh, that are uh, protesting or worse, want to be heard. I wonder, too, if, if the problem is there, there's just a. Uh, an unwillingness to confront certain truths that are uncomfortable. I mean, can 
the 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 honest conversation, and I don't mean like on race in general, racism exists with a sort of the the cliche. I mean like the honest conversation about life choices, the honest conversation about dispute resolution, the honest conversation about specific cases they're exercised about and what they actually understand and take away from those cases, um, perhaps versus what they should. I mean, is that do you even see that as possible right now? No, they're they're listening to an agenda from someone else right now. They they're being baited and they don't want to hear the truth. That's that's the one problem. They don't want to hear the truth. Calmer heads have to prevail. Um, working in the community, working with gang members for so many years, you know, you got to get them calmed down. You have to let them have their say in what they say, you know, what, whatever they have to say. And then sometimes you have to just let it stew for a little bit in their head, and then you have to lay the truth out to them. They may understand it, they may not. But when you have a mob mentality or you having the news continually feed false narratives to them, they're not going to believe anything else that comes to them right now. What's your uh, uh, future in terms of uh, uh, what's your plans to stay on the job or not stay on the job? We've seen so many uh, cities reporting huge uh, increases in police putting in for retirement and wanting to get off the job. I don't know what your perspective is. Um, I haven't decided yet. I am the officer wellness coordinator. I take care of the officer's mental wellness, and I feel an obligation and responsibility to do that. So, um there's going to be some changes made, hopefully, and I'll I'll consider going back and uh, helping my officers. You know, they are family to me. A lot of these guys are officers are like my children. So I just feel an obligation. I have to go back and protect them and help them. Hmm. And Dorn, widow of retired police captain David Dorn, killed uh, in St. Louis in early June, as we all know. And Dorn, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Welcome back to the show. Following on that uh, that uh, uh, excellent discussion with Ann Dorn, appreciate uh, so much her coming on the show to talk about uh, policing and race in America, violence. Uh, also, Jason Whitlock gives us a little bit of an update uh, as he's turned his column into, as he writes, Black Lives Matter 101. This is Black Lives Matter 101, Volume 8, the online class dedicated to explaining to athletes the real agenda and impact of the BLM movement, which... Uh, the acronym Jason Whitlock says stands for bigots love Marxism. That's pretty spot on. He uh, took notice of Black Lives Matter scrubbing its what we believe page from its website this week. The website page that featured, you know, we believe in disrupting the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other's extended families and quote unquote villages that collectively care for one another. That's gone now. And he writes, uh, Whitlock does, people are finally looking beyond BLM's catchy slogan and evaluating the actual agenda. The agenda is Karl Marx's anti-God, pro-communist political theory. BLM scrubbed its What We Believe page because smart people are distancing themselves from BLM. And he provides some examples. 
this summer, while American sports leagues were swallowing Black Lives Matter's entire agenda and betting their slogans onto fields and courts, the Premier Soccer League distanced itself from BLM. Two weeks ago, ESPN reported the Premier Club scrapped their BLM badges, even. And he goes on to say, this is why I've been furious with the horrendous leadership of Roger Goodell, NFL, Adam Silver from another planet to be the NBA commissioner, Rob Manfred, MLB commissioner. They embraced BLM at the exact time the rest of the world was figuring out the fraudulence of the BLM movement. The clowns running corporate America, including Goodell, Silver and Manfred, should be held accountable for lacking the substance to stand against this destructive movement. They supported the new KKK, writes Whitlock, a race based domestic terrorist movement dependent on mob rule. They legitimized it and justified a summer of chaos. When will the NFL and NBA backpedal and start scrubbing BLM from the sports landscape? Will anyone in the mainstream sports media ask LeBron James about BLM's backpedal with respect to its website? Surely not. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, sports and politics in the next hour when um, we review what uh, the Inside the NBA panelists, Sir Charles and Shaq in particular, had to say about the, the, Deanna, uh, the Breonna Taylor case. One other point on BLM and this whole racket, and that's what it is. Good piece from Asra Nomani about her STEM high school, her son's STEM high school, uh, who signed a contract to bring Ibram Kendi in. This is the American University African Studies his slash history professor who's risen to prominence because of his anti-racist program, essentially, right? The, you can't just be against racism. You have to be actively anti-racist and all this corporate change. So... Um, and that, that this is just a this is just a play for money in addition to a play for political power, you know, the revolution of the prolet- identitarian proletariat and so forth. Ibram Kendi contracted with the Fairfax County School Board for the Fairfax County Public Schools in Virginia. Twenty thousand dollar fee for a 60 minute talk for a 60 minute video talk, 20 grand from a, a local school district. But no, 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 this is not about uh, money. This is about principle. This is about uh, uh, uplifting uh, black Americans and so on and so forth, uh, eradicating racism and so on and so forth. Sure it is. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. This is the Dan Prof Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Everyone had a fear there would be explosive outbreaks of transmission in the schools. We have to say that to date we have not seen those in the younger kids, and that's really an important observation. That's Michael Osterholm, director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota and a favored go-to epidemiologist of the D.C. Press Corps. Researchers at Brown University found extremely low levels of virus transmission over a two-week period in schools that reopened. I'm not seeing at this particular point the rate I had expected, said Zef Capo, president of the Texas branch of the American Federation of Teachers. Oh, not the uh, infectious disease expert he expected he was. It's still very early, writes uh, Jacob Sullum over at the Reason Magazine, and opening schools could eventually correlate with virus spread. But right now, the idea that it's impossible to reopen schools safely until some undetermined far-off point in the future perhaps when a vaccine is available, is not holding up. 
Additionally, even this conversation I find troubling because it focuses strictly on cases rather than the nature of the cases. Yes, the volume and then also a distribution of the severity that it continues to be absent from so many of these conversations. Science Magazine, a uh, summary of the uh, available research on COVID-19 and children and young people. That's the title of the piece. The abstract uh, summary, children have a low risk of COVID-19 and are disproportionately harmed by precautions. The concluding paragraph, the role of children in transmission remains unclear. However, existing evidence evidence points to educational settings playing only a limited role in transmission when mitigation measures are in place in marked contrast to other respiratory viruses. In the event of seemingly inevitable future waves of COVID-19, there is likely to be future pressures to close schools. There is now an evidence base on which to make decisions and school closures should be undertaken with trepidation given the indirect harms that they incur. Pandemic mitigation measures that affect children's well-being should only happen if evidence exists that they help because there's plenty of evidence that they do harm. That's where we're at. Harming children based on the evidence, at least in those school districts that are shut down. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined again by Dr. John Lee, retired professor of pathology and National Health Service consultant across the pond there in Britain. Dr. Lee, thanks for joining us again. I know from talking to you previously, uh, you're not surprised that the evidence continues to mount, that you and others who took the position on reopening schools were correct. I think that's true. I mean, obviously, one of the things you try and do as a scientist is always just check your assumptions, check whether what you've been saying is right. And But I have to say, it does seem to be panning out the way that I thought it was going to pan out, which is that nothing much is happening out there. Look, I'm, I'm not interested in spiking footballs and pretending to know things I don't know. There's still a lot of things that we don't know. That's what uh, so many on the sort of the lockdown and bust tunnel vision have been doing. Um, and so, for example, I wanted to get your reaction to this story out of The Washington Post that there uh, may be a mutation of COVID-19 that's more contagious and could defeat masks and social distancing efforts. But Scientists published a paper Wednesday, not peer-reviewed yet. A new strain of virus accounted for almost all the new cases of COVID-19 in a second wave that hit the Houston, Texas area. I don't think you're surprised that the possibility the virus will mutate, but what's your understanding of the prevailing science in terms of mutations happening and what those mutations look like? Because I know a lot of public health professionals say, well, normally when it mutates, it probably weakens. It doesn't get stronger. I mean, that's what you'd expect. I mean, the trouble with a lot of the stuff that's being published on this, as you say, it's not peer-reviewed. And so because of COVID, we've sort of just put to one side all the normal mechanisms for making sure that science is telling us what we think it's telling us. So obviously that doesn't really help us understand what's happening. But you would expect that in a virus that is out there and it spreads on the wind, that those versions of the virus that are weaker and spread more easily would spread more easily because when they infect people, they don't make them feel ill, they're asymptomatic. So those people are still going out and about and spreading the virus unknowingly and so more people catch a milder strain. And that's the way you would expect evolution of this thing to work. Um, The catastrophists are always looking for you know, the little straws that support their vision of the world, which is that it's all going wrong and we're all going to, about to die. But of course, we never are dying, are we? We're all about to die tomorrow and it's all going to be bad tomorrow. <laughs> Israel moving back to lockdowns. There's protestations in France against 
some of the restrictions, uh, as we've seen protests in other Western European countries off and on over the last several weeks. But there definitely is an increase in cases in some countries. And what are those countries doing? Going back to the policies that they had been pursuing previously, they seem to have decided they are unwilling to learn much. They're just going to play politics with it. Uh, and the same goes to some extent for Boris Johnson in, in Britain, doesn't it? I think so, yeah. I mean, the trouble with it is, I, in fact, if your listeners are interested, I've got an article on a website called Spiked out today called The Making of Britain's Corona Catastrophe. And the three things I'm pointing out there are the overwhelming use of the precautionary principle by people in, in power, whereby they, they simply, you know, any risk is unacceptable risk. But of course, you know, it's sometimes called the better safe than sorry principle. But of course, you know, is it true? I mean, sorry has a cost, but so does safe. And we're finding out that in this instance, the cost of safe is greater than the cost of sorry. And the fact that scientists on these committees, always the catastrophists shout louder, don't they? It's, it's always the people who shout loudest and create and, and claim doom and gloom who get the ear of, of people, it seems. But I mean, really, what's the justification for these lockdowns, I mean, it seems to me that the actual level of risk that, as you stated at the beginning again, is now evidence-based. The absolute level of risk is so far below the threshold that in a liberal democracy should enable compulsion of its citizens that I just don't know what we're doing. I mean, you know, it's very disappointing to be here six months after all this started, still talking about this, still with so many people having restrictions placed on their lives yes. on the basis of the slimmest of justifications. Yes, and, and also on the topic of immunity, this has been a point of contention in our country over the week with some testimony from Dr. Tony Fauci on the Hill, uh, some comments from Dr. Scott Atlas from Stanford, who's been added to President Trump's coronavirus task force, as you know. And this study out of Tokyo, the serology study that uh, finds um, we may be you know, wildly underestimating the number of people that have developed an immunity or possessed a cross immunity to COVID-19 when they did testing the 650 uh, Japanese individuals that tested them. The uh, antibody presence or the, the seroprevalence number went from like five and a half percent to almost 47 percent. So perhaps maybe we were not into so-called herd immunity yet, but perhaps we're a lot closer than CDC and some of these other agencies are suggesting we are. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think a lot of the assumptions that have been made about this virus uh, in the modeling that's been done, this rather biologically uninformed modeling that's been done, are simply wrong. I mean, the authorities are doing antibody testing because they're cheap and easy, but antibodies aren't the normal way we fight viruses. The normal way we fight viruses is by different arm, or at least by one different arm of the immune system called T cells. And these are cells that search out cells that have got virus inside them by seeing what the virus proteins in the, in the cell membrane, and then they kill those cells. They kill them before those cells can make lots more virus. So the thing is, those T cell responses are much harder to test for than antibody responses, so they aren't being tested for. But one in six colds in a normal winter are caused by coronaviruses. So it wouldn't at all be surprising, given that we've all had many coronavirus infections in our lives, we've all had lots of colds, we've all had many coronavirus infections in our lives, it wouldn't be at all surprising if we have cross-reacting T-cells. And when those studies have been done, and there are many studies from different labs now around the world that have been uh, looked at this, 40 to 80 percent of people have cross-reacting T-cells to this coronavirus. So it seems to me that correlates very, very well with the idea that children are pretty not susceptible to this because children, as anybody who's had young children, they breed up viruses and all sorts of pathogens and constantly have runny noses and we all catch runny noses from them. But the point is their immune systems are stronger and they seem to be pretty much unaffected by this. As we get older, in the same way that our skin gets wrinklier, our immune system sort of metaphorically gets wrinklier as well. And so we're more susceptible to lots of pathogens, including ones that children and young people aren't susceptible to, including this coronavirus. So the actual way it works in the population of children and young people being pretty not susceptible at all 
all unless they've got other serious conditions and old people becoming more susceptible is just a normal way in which the body affects our response to pathogens. So um, I think it's highly likely when they're actually detecting the antibodies in 10 or 15% of people that we're probably already very close to herd immunity, which is why there's very little correlation now between case numbers and admissions to hospital and deaths. And really the only thing that we should be looking at is admissions to hospital and deaths, and they're very low. The other thing to say actually about case numbers is that these tests that they're doing for cases on, on the basis of PCR, the polymerase chain reaction, it's very difficult to interpret what they mean because there's no proper standardization of tests. Some people iterate the test 15 or 20 times, some people 30 or 40 times. You don't know whether you're measuring a, fra a fragment of a virus or the real infection itself, but many of the positive tests in the UK have been found to be co being called weak positives, and these people have maybe a hundredfold less viral load than the strong positives that you find in hospital. Uh, these people are probably not infectious, and they're almost all asymptomatic. So it begs the question, what on earth are we doing to our lives and our economies for a disease which, as you say, in the majority of people, 90, 95% of people, they don't even know that they've got it. The, you know, the commonest symptoms of coronavirus are nothing, and the commonest sequelae of coronavirus are nothing. So what exactly do we think we're doing? What exactly do we think we're doing? Great question. I'm going to make that a rhetorical one. Dr. John Lee, retired professor of pathology, NHS consultant pathologist. Dr. Lee, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. Tell me why I don't like money. Tell me why I don't Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. And the Inside the NBA guys, Ernie Johnson with Sir Charles, Charles Barkley, Kenny Smith, and Shaq, they took up the Breonna Taylor case. I got to tell you, it's a bit surprising. It's just refreshing, maybe more than surprising, given how politicized and, of course, how much leftist crap is coming from the NBA and other professional sports leagues since George Floyd. So it was refreshing to get some just common sense from at least a couple of the panelists. Kenny Smith struggled a little bit, but Sir Charles uh, kicked it off. This one was, I don't think it was like George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery. I just feel sad that this young lady lost her life. The no-knock warrant is something that we need to get rid of, not just in Louisville, but across the board. I am worried that we lump all these situations in together. You know, we do have to take into account that her boyfriend did shoot at the cops and shot a cop. I don't think that we can just say we can put this in the same situation with George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey. I just don't believe that. And you can't put Ahmed Aubrey in the same situation or characterize it the same way as George Floyd. They're different cases. Yeah, I mean, distinguishing between the cases, the facts of the specific case matter. You just throw names together because they uh, met, uh, you know, a similar fate. Although Ahmed Aubrey, that wasn't law enforcement, not formally. But his point is well taken that you don't just say a black person killed at the hands of a white police officer. It's all the same. It's not all the same. The no-knock warrant piece of it. The argument for no-knock warrants, the one Brandon Tatum, former Tucson police officer, made on this show yesterday is uh, maybe Breonna Taylor would still be alive if uh, they had not knocked, even though I understand this is in dispute and there's conflicting eyewitness testimony and so forth. But the element of surprise, so you don't give people you think may be armed and have a tendency to 
respond violently to police or just about anybody else, you don't give them time to prepare. So maybe if the police had just used the no-knock warrant they had and not announced themselves and had the element of surprise, they could have got to Walker before he was able to get to his gun. Having a discussion about no-knock warrants is perfectly fine. Dismissing the facts of this particular case, not fine. And so Barkley's point is a salient one. Shaq made uh, even more common sense more succinctly. When you talk about murder, you have to prove intent, always. You know, when you have a warrant that's signed by the judge, you are doing your job. And if somebody fires at you, I would imagine that you would fire back. Yeah, that's the sort of uh, talking sense that has been largely absent. By the, I mean, the, the, the people suggesting that Breonna Taylor was murdered. Somebody wants to make the case that any one of those Louisville police officers had malice of forethought, that they were looking to kill Breonna Taylor when they obtained and then served, acted upon those warrants. I mean, that is just complete fiction. And yet the claim persists. Now, Kenny Smith has struggled a little bit because he wanted to uh, check some boxes before trying to sort of get around to agreeing with Barkley and Shaq. And when you hear abolish the police, you hear Black Lives Matter, you're not talking about an organization. You're not talking about a movement. You're talking about abolishing people that are doing wrong. Mm. So it's not saying that the people want lawlessness and don't want police officers or defund the police. And they don't want any police or anyone to have law abiding people. It's a matter of taking what has been constructed, which has definitely been systematically placed to hinder that hinders black colored people in a 50-50 environment or a 70-30 environment, it hinders them dramatically more than anyone else, then it is not a correct system. And it's not a broken system. It is a system that is flawed. Broken would imply that it has always been working. It already had been working. It's never been working. It's never been intended to work that way. Uh, And Isaiah Thomas had said in, in the arena, we the people we weren't including in that statement and never have been. So we had to always fight for the right for that. So it's not about anything other than we all are created equal. We, we, no one wants to defund and not have police. No one wants to say that just only this organization give money to black lives. No, we're saying that the system is flawed based on it. Uh, people of color it's the ones who are generally being targeted. Okay, so yes, we're all equal in the eyes of God. We're all created equal. That's good. That's right. Isaiah Thomas is wrong, Kenny. Sorry. And so you're wrong for repeating him on uh, We the People, and we've never been part of We the People. That's not true. Uh, In addition to that, it's not broken, it's fixed sort of argument about the system and uh, that the system is uh, institutionally racist, systemically racist. That's sort of what he's getting to. And uh, therefore, there needs to be systemic changes. If the system is the problem, who is in charge of the system? We've uh, raised this before, but I think uh, perhaps it needs to be raised again. In Louisville, for example, Greg Fisher is the mayor. He's a Democrat. I believe he's at the beginning of his third term. So he's a Democrat, supported ostensibly by a majority of black Americans who live in Louisville. And so they support him. And then, by extension, the appointments he makes, his administration. I mean, you know, is there a culpable party? It's just whiteness is culpable. No individual person is culpable, except, of course, Orange Man in the White House. But nobody else is. It's just whiteness generally, that is, that abstraction. That's what these uh, race hustlers like Ibram Kendi and Robin D'Angelo and Nicole Hannah-Jones want you to believe. But is that really how it works? I mean, how do you get to any solution if it's an abstraction that's responsible and not individual people who have specific authority? 
And if you believe it's individual people who have specific authority who have to be held to account for what they do and what happens on their watch, then how long does it take to address this systemic problem that has been identified by you, Kenny, and others? And why hasn't it been fixed with people that majority of black Americans in these big cities supported for office. I mean, at at what point do you get held accountable for the people you support? I mean, is it is it blacks in Louisville are proponents of systemic racism against blacks in Louisville? Because that seems to be what you're saying if you say it's systemic or is it something else? I just wish the logic of the position would be presented to people like Kenny who are struggling with trying to make sense of it. They want to be on board with Black people have it worse, and it's a systemic problem, not just a a case of individual circumstances and individual people uh, that make bad decisions or, in some cases, are bad people and have bad intentions. It can't be that. It has to be something that's uh, structural. Okay, well, if it's structural, then work the logic for me. Help me understand, and what's the solution? Because your people are in charge of the structure, people you supported politically, be they white or black, the same mentality. That's what you want. So you're a willing participant in... The racist institutions allied against you? How does that work? Maybe the whole thing doesn't make much sense. Maybe that could be it. Notwithstanding what uh, Barkley had to say uh, at the outset about no-knock warrants, uh, as I said, I appreciate the fact he's trying to distinguish between the facts in particular cases that drive an understanding and uh, and a view on those cases. Also, uh, Barkley had something to say about uh, the defund the police movement uh, invoking Ray Parker Jr., I hear these fools on TV talking about defund the police and things like that. We need police reform and prison reform and things like that. Because you know who ain't going to defund the cops? White neighborhoods and rich neighborhoods. So that notion they keep saying that, I'm like, wait a minute, we just going to leave. Who are black people supposed to call? Ghostbusters? When we have crime in our (laughs) neighborhoods, we need police reform. But like I say, white people, especially rich white people, they're always going to have cops. So we need to stop that defund or abolish the cops crap. Yeah, uh, agreed. And and it's not even a white black thing, as mentioned with, uh, I think we mentioned with Brett Baer earlier in the show. No, again, 80% Gallup poll survey, 80% of black Americans want the same or more police presence in the neighborhoods in which they live. And that's what Barkley's speaking to, you know, the defund the police goofballs out there. That's what they are, whether they're in public office or just on public streets. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. And of course, uh, the last 24 hours have uh, brought some 48 hours have brought some real developments that could uh, impact the conversation that Joe Biden and Donald Trump have on Tuesday night in their first square off one, the Senate report on Hunter Biden uh, detailing some of what we suspected to be true, but adding some things that uh, fold in Joe Biden, including what he did or didn't know about Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings at the same time that he was the point person in countries where Hunter for the Obama administration and countries where Hunter Biden was doing business with government officials, Hmm. influence peddling self enrichment sort of charge could be coming from Trump on a Tuesday, Tuesday night, and they can go back and forth about the kids and the emoluments clause. 
I don't know, but certainly because of the sensitivity with Ukraine as uh, central to the impeachment gambit against President Trump, that could be something at least discussed, at least raised. The more important thing, which is just remarkable, is the continued vindication of President Trump as it pertains to the Russian collusion investigation. And the report yesterday by CBS's Catherine Herridge, substantiated with documents released by Lindsey Graham, that the FBI was uh, aware of things that didn't indicate it was aware of, uh, including the fact, apparently, that Christopher Steele's main source for the now infamous dossier was the subject of a nearly two-year-long FBI counterintelligence investigation by the FBI under suspicion of being a Russian spy and, quote, threat to national security. So the FBI is investigating uh, Russian influence and Russian agency uh, in the Trump campaign. Meanwhile, they're basing their investigation on information provided by somebody they suspected was a Russian agent to another foreign agent to surveil Carter Page and the campaign for supposedly ties to Russian agents. You follow that? It's uh, almost like a classic case of projecting. We're going to impose on you what we're actually doing. I mean, this, uh, you know, for all of the talk this week about peaceful transition to power and whether or not that will be that will be that will occur regardless of outcome, which it will ultimately. What about what happened in 2016? I don't know how you describe this as something other than a coup attempt. How does all this factor into Tuesday to help uh, and the remaining 40 days? To help us suss that out, we're pleased to be joined by Chris Smith, contributing editor at Vanity Fair, New York Magazine, author of The Daily Show, the book, An Oral History as Told by John Stewart, the correspondent, staff, and guests. Welcome back, Chris Smith. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dan. Uh, so um, your piece in Vanity Fair is interesting, too, because you uh, get access to people who won't talk to me, like people with the Biden campaign, and um, and what and, and what they're concerned about, um, what they're thinking in terms of what their best positioning is where they should be, you know, what they want to be talking about versus what Trump wants to be talking about, how how each conversation plays to the advantage of one and disadvantage of the other. Just uh, develop for us what uh, what they told you. Sure. And, yeah, I guess we'll find out in November or maybe December who whose theory and strategy turns out to be right or wrong. Right. But at least. The operating strategy theory of the case for the Biden campaign has for a long time been that what voters care most about in this election in their lives is the ongoing coronavirus pandemic that's claimed more than 200,000 American lives. And very much related to that, the economic catastrophe that also continues. And Biden has returned again and again to those themes, those issues, and will again in the debate on Tuesday night. And it's their belief, the Biden campaign's belief, that while other issues from climate change to national security, you know, law and order in American cities, all those are important. And the Supreme Court vacancy, obviously, in the past week or so has become hugely important, that those things remain way down on the list for voters and that the more space and time Trump on Tuesday night or in the campaign in general 
can spend talking about anything other than the pandemic and the economy is good for Trump. And we've certainly, you know, seen that uh, throughout the past several months. You know, he'd rather uh, talk about almost anything than the pandemic response. Uh, you know, let's pick it up there, too, because I just want there's some polling out today that uh, suggests that um, makes some sense. But it does call into question, you know, where the priority is for uh, Americans, particularly Americans in swing slash battleground states that could be decisive. More with uh, Chris Smith, contributing editor of Vanity Fair, as well as New York Magazine, author of The Daily Show. The book and oral history is told by John Stewart, the correspondent, staff and guests. We'll be right back. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. We're uh, previewing Tuesday night's debate as well as the final 40 days of the election with Chris Smith. He's contributing editor of Vanity Fair and New York Magazine, author of The Daily Show, the book, An Oral History, as told by John Stewart, the correspondent, staff and guests. Before the break, we were talking about, uh, you know, what Joe Biden wants to be talking about, which is uh, the pandemic and Obamacare, according to the Biden campaign. That's where they want him. And uh, President Trump wants to be talking about uh, anything other than the pandemic. Uh, and there may be some reason for that, uh, particularly the law and order piece. AP poll out uh, yesterday finds that uh, 44 percent of Americans now disapprove of the protests in response to police violence. Uh, well, 39 percent approve. That's uh, down significantly. It's flipped uh, in June. Fifty four percent approve. So as the violence persists and sometimes it's not related to anything in particular, depending on the city, like in Seattle and Portland, um, people are sort of starting to get weary of it. And uh, uh, Trump seems to have taken advantage of it. So, I mean, it makes some sense. There's just more upside for him on that issue. So long as uh, uh, as uh, you know, violence and fires and, and police being shot in Louisville uh, dominate or at least uh, share domination of the headlines. Sure. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that except for extremes or downright bad people, no one's in favor of violence. Violence is not popular right. with anybody. And, you know, but, but I mean, it's, but it's, but it was, sorry to interrupt, but I mean, it's sort of like, um, you know, nobody's in favor of COVID-19 deaths either, but it doesn't stop people like Joe Biden from tagging President Trump for responsibly for all 200,000 dead. Nobody's nobody's Correct. nobody's so supportive of that. But it becomes then how do you handle things when they happen? And so how mayors like Wheeler and Durkin and Lightfoot and others have handled the violence uh, becomes a bit of an issue. Oh, for sure. But as Biden says repeatedly, and I think correctly, when it comes to the pandemic or less directly, but certainly still more uh, response. Well, that's not a good word, but. The president is the president. Trump's in charge, as he likes to say repeatedly. So, you know, you can talk about, oh, you know, these are Democratic run states or cities. But, you know, the guy in the White House is Trump. And so responsibility for the pandemic traces back to him. And if you want to talk about the the tone and the incitement of violence, a lot of that rests with Trump. Also, you know, you can debate what Biden has uh, said or believes when it comes to protest or law and order. But, 
he's got no power to do anything about it at the moment. And that's one of the things he's going to continue to point out is what, what he would do differently if he gets elected president. But the fact that through these past almost four years, Trump has been president and is president and what he's done has made it worse. Well, so, I mean, the vi- you've been talking, talking about violence. I mean, um, you know, like this is I, this this will be a, a good uh, proxy for what the back and forth on Tuesday night. I mean, look, um, uh, I'm not I, at the same time you accuse me of being a dictator. You accuse me of not being enough of a dictator. So which is it? Um, I'm supposed to come in and, and police your cities for you, except you don't want me to, except you appease the mob, which has nothing to do with me. I'm, I'm not in charge of the Louisville Police Department. I had nothing to do with Breonna Taylor. Same thing goes for George Floyd in Minneapolis. And so it's all about managing the response. But you don't want me involved in managing the response because orange man is bad. So which is it? Well, there's a lot going on there, but whether Trump wants to be a dictator or just talks like one is, a, is an interesting question. His actual leadership of the government, and certainly in terms of the pandemic response, in, in my view, has been disruptive and incompetent. Um, but besides having all the levers of power that you know any president has at his disposal, in terms of government agencies, the the bully pulpit, to use the cliche, matters a whole lot. Yeah. So what a president is going out there and saying every day sets a tone and either encourages or discourages everything from whether people are wearing masks to whether, quote unquote, you know, patriots are driving in caravans from Idaho to Portland and, you know, provoking uh, even more dangerous situations. Now, you know, the responsibility for setting fires and, and shooting in either direction, you know, those people should be arrested, no question. And Biden has said that repeatedly, you know, until the very recent past. He's had tremendous support from police unions. And so, you know, I don't think anybody is going to be able to paint him as a radical creature of no, but, socialist or anarchist well, ideology. Well, until recently, he's had support from police unions. Yeah, something's changed recently, and the police unions have made a, a shift with that change. And it's not about painting him necessarily as a, as, a, as a 60s radical like Bernie Sanders, but it's painting him as somebody who's beholden to that element within the Democrat Party. And I think that has been something that that has been somewhat effective uh, against Biden so far. Yeah, we'll see. Um, And, you know, in a long debate on Tuesday night, you know, Chris Wallace from Fox News has outlined five uh, areas he intends to cover, but I'm sure things will wander in a variety of directions. And uh, I wrote a piece that's much more centered on debate preparation that's actually, you know, come out today, Friday. And uh, I talked to several people who have done debate prep on the Democratic side Mm -hmm. previously. And, you know, they give Trump a lot of credit for knowing how to use TV and knowing how to be a performer mm-hmm. effectively. Um, but, you know, their description of 
portraying Trump, you know, pretending to be Trump in debates is, is fascinating because you just have to set aside most of the norms or, or, you know, etiquette that a lot of us grow up with and just be on the attack essentially all the time. Well, and how yeah. Biden's able to parry that is going to be very interesting. He is Chris Smith, contributing editor of Vanity Fair, New York Magazine, author of The Daily Show, the book, An Oral History as Told by John Stewart, the correspondent staff, and guests. Chris, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Appreciate it, Dan. Be well. Take care, you too. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back. Just following up on um, conversation with Chris Smith from Vanity Fair. Uh, now, of course, he comes from premises of the left on so many things, so there's no use uh, going back and forth too much looking for what he gleaned from his conversations with Camp Biden. One piece of advice I would give President Trump for Tuesday, because I think it works on multiple levels, is to go right after Joe Biden's stated rationale for his candidacy. What has Biden said repeatedly? I got into this race after Charlottesville. And he so he's saying, I got into this race after Charlottesville, which is where uh, uh, the left's mythology about it, where the the president of the United States praised white supremacists, white nationals and white supremacists as saying, you know, there were some good guys there in those ranks as well. When President Trump explicitly said the opposite, as we've played on this show any number of times. But that's Joe Biden's stated. Why are you running for president? You know, the why question that every candidate at every level from dog catcher to president has to answer. What's the basis for your candidacy? Joe Biden has said the basis for my candidacy is what Trump said at Charlottesville and the mythological version of it that the left created. And uh, the media has now emblazoned upon the minds of so many. Go right after it. Not only to debunk it, but to say something more powerful that folds in with the fact that he's president of the United States and has a record of accomplishment to speak to. You don't want to talk about your accomplishments like rattling them off like bullet points on a CV. You want to weave them into a moment, to a point. And if I were President Trump, I'd say, you know, you've said this repeatedly and you've lied about what I said, as well as more importantly, who I am. And it's I'm just so tired of the, the failure of the left to have any argument on the merits of improving people's quality of life here. Any good ideas on ec- economic growth and job creation except everything has to run through the government. That's your solution for everything. So in lieu of an ability to defend that position, to defend positions that are unpopular and unwieldy, you just call people names. I'm a racist. I take offense to that. Not only is that untrue, and it's been untrue my entire life uh, and my professional record, uh, you'll recall I was the guy being feted at a New York City luncheon 30 years ago by Jesse Jackson and Rainbow Push, Joe Biden. While you were you know, dithering around in the swamp like you have for the last 47 years. And as far as what I've done as president, so you, you can go ahead and call me names. I take umbrage at it, but go ahead and call me the names. Go ahead and use that 
in lieu of anything substantive to say. But what I've done on criminal justice reform, what I've done with funding of historically black colleges, what I've done with uh, Senator Tim Scott and Opportunity Zones, that's substantive stuff that is good for black Americans. uh, And that is done under this president, not the previous one, not your administration with Barack Obama. I did that working with members of Congress who wanted to advance the flag for black Americans, just as I do, just as I want to advance the flag for all Americans. And I was doing, and we had been doing that together as a country up until this pandemic hit, and we're going to do it again. That could be a moment, don't you think? This is Dan Prof. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com on social media at Dan Proft Show. Uh, and um, we're pleased to be joined now by Tom Holman, who's the former acting director of ICE, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Tom, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you having me. I wanted to start, before we get to uh, talking about uh, how the uh, the violence in America's streets and how police are being treated generally, I wanted to start just with uh, your old gig at ICE. Uh, ICE posting on Twitter yesterday, 40-year-old citizen of El Salvador convicted of homicide, robbery, and terrorist threats, Process and released by LAPD last month. Just one egregious example from ICE's decline detainer update for L.A. County. Uh, and the reason I, I raise this is just because the lawlessness on America's streets provides cover for the sanctuary city policies that are releasing more violent people onto the streets uh, who will take advantage of the chaos that other violent people are creating. No, I agree 100 percent. L.A. County has declined over twenty five thousand detainers from ICE. And if you take in consideration, every detainer filed in L.A. County means they filed a detainer against someone that's in the country illegally that was sitting in the L.A. County jail. So if you think about it, L.A. County made the decision to lock this person up, right? They, they decide to lock him in the jail cell because he's either a public safety threat or a flight risk. There's enough concern that they locked him in a jail cell. And all ICE is doing is saying, when you're done with them, we want to talk to them because we have uh, probable causes in the country illegally. And we want to remove that public safety threat permanently from your neighborhood. And it's, it's just, I, you know, the, the sheriff over there, I'm, 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 I'm extremely upset with him because he knowingly releases public safety threats back into the public because he's picking politics over public safety. And I've seen the statement. He says, well, we don't cooperate with ICE because we want, you know, the immigrant community to not be afraid to report crimes or, you know, report victimization of crimes. Let me be clear. ICE is looking for the people sitting in the county jail. We're not looking for the victims. We're not looking for the witnesses. We want the bad guy that you ought to arrest. And you, when you release a public safety threat back in the community, he's going to reoffend in the very community in which he lives, the immigrant community. So by my honor, ICE detainers, he's putting the immigrant community at greater risk of crime. He's also putting the immigrant community at greater risk of ICE arrest because we can't arrest a bad guy in the jail then we're required to go to the neighborhood and find him and arrest him. And when we do that, we're probably going to find others. So that that policy doesn't help immigrant communities at all. Puts them at greater risk of crime, puts them at greater risk of ICE arrest. And finally, I'll say this. If the sheriff went to the community and asked him one simple question, have a community meeting asking ask this one simple question. Would you rather have ICE operating in your community or in your jail? 
what do you think they're going to say? Mm-hmm. So it's the sheriff out there is a false narrative he's pushing, all like all the other sanctuaries. It seems to be a real parallel uh, and identitarian politics as at the heart of both parallel between these sanctuary cities and how they handle people in this country illegally committing violent crimes and how they handle people uh, who are mainly residents of this country uh, engaged in anarchist activities and violence uh, because of the nature of their cause. They in both situations, they're in the business of appeasement. Well, look, you know, I agree 100%. In every one of these cities where there's rioting going on, they all started as sanctuary cities. So they walked away from law enforcement years ago. I didn't think they just, they were spread from ICE and CBP to, to the local law enforcement. But look, these politicians, these Democratic politicians in these cities and these governors have vilified law enforcement. So, you know, crimes rising in their cities. And all of a sudden, the, 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 the people that commit the crimes are the victims. And the men and women that enforce the laws are, are the bad guys. Look, and it all started at the top. Look, Nancy Pelosi called federal agents stormtroopers. You got Kamala Harris compared ICE to the KKK. You got AOC saying, you know, they're Nazis or racist, they run concentration camps, make women drink out of toilets. You got Ayanna Pressey saying the civil disobedience should continue until there's real police reform. Mm-hmm. So, when, so when these groups see the, the nation's leaders, the most powerful people in the U.S. government, vilify law enforcement, it just entices them to do more. So they, they have they have thrown gas on the fire, and and, and, and I talk let's just talk about Joe Biden, Kamala Harris for a minute. Kamala Harris, like I said, she compared ICE to the KKK. They haven't spoken a word about the violence in the cities for the first two months. The only time they spoke up is when they when their polls showed it was hurting them by being silent on the issue. So then they went out and started talking about it to help their own voting uh, uh, polls. They didn't go out there for the right reason. They didn't go out there to say, you know, we need to protect American communities. We, we, they didn't go out there saying we need to enforce the law and people shouldn't be looting and, and, and committing arson and attacking police officers. They didn't do it until they found out it was going to hurt their poll numbers. So even they, Biden and, and, and Kamala Harris, are not pushing back on the anarchists that are, that are trying to take over these cities. And and uh, and again this week uh, in Louisville after the Breonna Taylor grand jury decision was announced, you have violence in Louisville. You have two police officers who are shot, including a black police officer. Thankfully, both will survive. But uh, I don't see an end to this in sight, including with the election, regardless of outcome. Do you? No, look, this, this is a plan coordinated thing. They're just waiting for these kids to go loot and steal and, and commit crimes. And, and they're, you know, it's, it's, I think what's going to happen, I think the FBI is looking into this. They're going to find out who's coordinating this, who's, who's funding this across the country, and hold those people accountable. I think there's people out there who want chaos in this country. I think it's going to help defeat President Trump in November. Mm-hmm. But I think it's I think it's backfired on him. I think they've gone too far. I think even some politicians that are trying to backpedal now. But uh, I think I think these writings will tell the people they have a clear choice in November. They've got a law and order president, and they've got Joe Biden. And i tell you something. I think when President Trump wins re-election, he's going to take a hard stance. He's not going to ask permission anymore. He's going to send the National Guard where he needs a sentence to protect Americans, American lives and property. So, you know, I, we, this is the most important election of my lifetime. And I hope people understand that we're in a fight for the future of this country. You know, and it's not just the violence on the streets and uh, coordinated or people just uh, throwing in, uh, seizing the opportunity to engage in lawlessness. It's also just what's happening culturally. And um, the statements from people in positions of status, not authority, but status, and thus some some influence. This ESPN broadcaster, uh, his name is Mark Jones. He uh, made a big splash in the last... uh, 24 hours by saying that he's uh, told his security protection uh, that's attendant to the games he broadcasts on Saturday to uh, to take the day off. 
saying this. Saturday at my football game, I'll tell the police officer on duty to, to uh, on duty to protect me. He can just take the day off. I'd rather not have the officer shoot me because he feared for his life because of my black skin or other dumbish. I'm not signing my own death certificate. I mean, this is the attitude of somebody who's a sports broadcaster uh, with respect to local police in whatever city he is broadcasting a game where he's pr- provided the luxury of uh, of a police escort. This is how he views all police. All police are just looking for a reason to shoot him because he's black. Well, look, a couple of things. First of all, Tom is disgusting. He should be ashamed of himself. And ESPN should fire him. You know, I've seen so many people being fired today talk against BLM or they talk against Antifa. They talk, they say there really isn't a systematic racism. I feel a, a lot of high profile figures either got relief from network TV or, or been, you know, school teachers been fired and, you know, I, I see the story all the time. It's a double standard. You know, the, the right has no, you know, they haven't, they haven't, they haven't got the right kind of opinion, the voice opinion, and risk of being fired if being called racist. But the other side can say anything they want, and they're not being held accountable. That is, that is a dangerous statement. That's a disgusting statement. And ESPN should fire them. And I tell you, the conservatives are right. They, they need to do the same thing like this. They should boycott that network until they make some changes. I mean, they always, they're always threatening. You know, the left's always boycotting this company or. No, let's boycott Goya because he said nice things about the president. They always boycott American companies if they stand up to the, anar- in the, the anarchists in this country. If we should play the same game. Every one of your listeners, everybody that you know watches Fox News, they, they ought to boycott ESPN to they, until they're held accountable because that's a disgusting statement. In my opinion, that's a racist statement, and they need to hold that guy accountable. Yeah. I mean, do you sense a backlash is coming? I mean, I know the police unions have moved to President Trump, and, and sometimes they middle on uh, on candidates at the presidential level. New York City in particular has never endorsed, um, and they're endorsing Trump. Um, and, and, and also just the, the fact that, look, most people want police in their neighborhoods. Uh, 80% of black Americans want the same level of police or more policing in their neighborhoods, according to Gallup. And so there, there's a backlash that's brewing. It may not be as vocal as the, the minority that's on the streets that gets amplified by the media. Um, but it is still real. It's building and, and maybe it crescendos on November 3rd. Look, I think I think president's going to win re-election. I think there may be thousands out there protesting, but the remains of, uh, American patriots sitting at home that are disgusted what's going on with the Democratic what Democratic Party has done, and they're not even mentioning this violence during the DNC. What scares me, what really worries me, is that with less police protection, police are afraid to do their jobs in certain cities because the mayors don't allow them to do their jobs. People are going to take up arms. Gun sales are on a, a record increase. Yeah. So I, you know, just want to lead to vigilantism, and I think people are going to start defending themselves, which means it's just, it's going it's going. Look, when you defund the police and you put the police, uh, uh, make them the bad guys, and and they're afraid to do their job, it's going to cause more crime. And unfortunately, I think some people are going to stand up in, in defense of themselves, and it's going to result in, in in more serious serious crimes. He is Tom Holman, former acting director of the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency. Tom, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate you. Keep doing what you're doing to educate American people. You too. Take care. Appreciate it. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Rachel Maddow over at MSNBC, or is it Chris Hayes? I can never tell the two apart. She's a super spreader of fertilizer. South Dakota has just set new records in the number of people hospitalized. New cases and overall active cases with a 36% spike in COVID-19 hospitalizations in the last week. The state now has the highest per capita rate of hospitalizations in the U.S. You have to go after Governor Kristi Noem and South Dakota because they have taken a light touch approach to the COVID-19 response in that state. They never shut down. Christy Nome responding, stop spreading fear. Only 8% of South Dakota's hospital beds are occupied by COVID-19 patients. We have and will continue to manage our resources to care for the people who need help. The people of South Dakota have accomplished this without draconian lockdown. Hashtag facts, not fear. Well, when the facts aren't with you, you have to instill fear, and that's what's happening. And it, it's the same thing that happens to President Trump per the rallies he's doing when Joe Biden isn't because who would show up? These super spreader events that also turn out to be not, just like Rachel Maddow's characterization of South Dakota that turns out to be not. It was uh, first the first rally that he held in Tulsa uh, that was supposed to be a super spreader event, potentially could have... Uh, extended the number of cases and, and the seriousness of the spread in, in, in Oklahoma. And actually had some academics on the West Coast look at it, and they couldn't find any evidence that there was any connection between Trump's rally and an increase in COVID cases in Oklahoma. And then it was Sturgis. And now it's just everywhere. Everywhere anybody goes where there's a crowd is a super spreader event. And anybody who interacts with anybody in a group of people is uh, reckless and is putting grandma and grandpa's life at risk and so on and so forth. For more on this, as well as the uh, Supreme Court vacancy and the nomination, which will be announced by the president tomorrow, we're pleased to be joined again by Gerard Baker, editor-at-large, Wall Street Journal. Gerard, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me again. Uh, You wrote a little bit about uh, super spreading and uh, that uh, ubiquitous accusation from the left to anything that resembles people enjoying life. So um, what do you make of the the fear mongering that persists from the left about COVID-19? Yeah, I mean, as you've said, it is kind of a miraculous. We are we are learning so many things about this virus, and, and I think one of the most fascinating is its miraculous capacity to apparently, you know, strike people really badly if they're attending partying or they're attending a motorcycle rally or they're attending a Trump rally, but to leave them completely untouched, like the angel. You know, the story of the Passover in Exodus that somehow, if you know, that the angel of death passes over you if you do the right thing, if you believe the right thing. So. As you just said, you know, so if you attend a Black Lives Matter rally or you're taking part in mass protests or rioting or looting or whatever, somehow you don't get sick. But if you you want to attend a family funeral or you want to go to a party or go to an event or meet your family, meet meet relatives, no, you're going to be struck down. It just is the lunacy of it, obviously, is is, is on one level laughable. But again, what it points to is just this authoritarian nature these these people just want to tell you what you know that they've wanted this i do think in many ways what we're seeing with covid is the realization of the hopes and political aspirations of people on the left for so long they've always wanted to be able to tell you what to do with your lives that's what fundamentally what socialism what the left really believes government you should do what you're told by government and covid is giving them this fabulous opportunity to do that this is the kind of society, the kind of system, the kind of political system that much of the left have wanted for a very long time. And and they just are absolutely kind of hugging themselves because they're actually being allowed to get away with it. Uh, President Trump uh, announces his selection to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the high court tomorrow. I think it's going to be Amy Coney Barrett. 
And apparently so does the left, because they've spent this week working to uh, do the bidding of uh, Democrat senators by attacking Amy Coney Barrett's religious beliefs and uh, her her alleged affiliation with a group called People of Praise. A Villanova law professor, (laughs) of all things, uh, Massimo Fejoli, uh, writes in Politico why Amy Coney Barrett's religious beliefs aren't off limits. And he makes all sorts of uh, assertions about uh, people of praise, and he wants all sorts of information about that to make sure that she's not a theocrat who is going to uh, institute biblical law over secular law as a member of the high court. It, it sounds like uh, whether it's DiFi leading the Inquisition or not, the uh, dogma lives loudly within her will punctuate any confirmation hearing that uh, the Senate uh, deigns to to uh, offer. Yeah, look, I mean, on display in the next few weeks, if it is Amy Tony Barrett, as people seem to think it's going to be, we'll hear tomorrow. The spectacle we're going to see in here in the next few weeks is going to be, you know, another of the kind of, of the left's, of a realization of the left's kind of uh, ideals, which is I mean, anti-Christian, particularly anti-Catholic bigotry, is pretty well the only acceptable bigotry that's actually left in this country. You know, can you imagine if it were a Muslim who were, you know, a candidate for the Supreme Court and being questioned about her religion and whether or not her religion was actually incompatible with being a federal judge in this country. Can you imagine, quite rightly, the outrage that people have? You know, you, there's freedom of religion in this country. Can you imagine the outrage that people would have about that? But because this is a Catholic with views that are in line with the Catholic Church's teachings and which tens of millions of Americans uh, uh, believe too, because she's a Catholic, these are completely unacceptable views that are apparently supposedly inconsistent with being able to administer justice. It's just... You know, again, I, I, as, as, as impressive as Amy Coney Barrett is, and again, it is her, and, and, as, and as remarkable a figure as she will be, I do fear slightly the spectacle that we're going to have to watch in the next couple of weeks as she is. You know, they can't go after her for supposedly taking part in gang rapes while she was in college like they did with Brett. Brett yeah. with, with Although, who made, knows? Stuff they made up about Brett. Well, maybe, yeah. No, but... Going back to uh, uh, the professor from Villanova, who I miss, he's not a law professor, he's a theology professor. The, he, this is what he writes, uh, Fagioli from Villanova. To whom has Barrett made a vow of obedience? What is its nature and scope? What are the consequences of violating it? And he argues that you know, this all speaks to question about her independence as a judge. Uh, he because of uh, because of her affiliation, not with the church, but potentially with this specific charismatic Catholic group, people of praise. Could you imagine? Could you imagine that sort of question being asked of somebody of a different faith? No, I mean, if it would be not only you know would, would it be considered unacceptable, you would be told that you were a bigot for um, you know for, for raising that question. And you know, I've got to say here, the media once again, you know, is 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 disgracing and clowning themselves over this issue. There were a couple of pieces this week which I think probably led to that Fagioli, that Politico piece. Um, you know, a couple of a couple of Newsweek ran a piece this week saying essentially that Amy Coney Barrett was a member of this People of Praise group, which was the model for uh, the Handmaid's Tale, right. um, which is you know, this, this dystopian vision. And it's completely uncomplete. And, and, and amusingly, they actually, <laughs> when this was pointed out, they, they ran a, they ran a correction at the bottom of the article saying uh, that you know there's no evidence whatsoever that this, this this organization was the model for the Handmaid's Tale. But the article still stands. And the headline, you know, they I think eventually changed that, but the story still stands. This complete lie, this total fiction 
that, that, that this is, um, you know, this organization that Amy Kelly Barrett belongs to, which is a charitable organization where people are committed, you know, actually, they don't take vows of obedience, all of that nonsense. It's just that it's, it's, it's a Christian organization, um, an evangel, a, a, you know, a, a, uh, an organization that's committed to doing good works and to, and, to, and to religious organization. It doesn't in any way impose obligations on anyone in it that, is in, that are inconsistent with being an American with being a, an American citizen. It's just, but the media just are allowed to get away with this stuff. Um, and, you know, in a way, as you say, if it, were, if it were anybody else, they would never even dare to do so. He is Gerard Baker, editor-at-large, Wall Street Journal. Gerard Baker, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Listen to podcasts of the show at danproffshow.com. Welcome back to the show. We move from our discussion with Gerard Baker from the Wall Street Journal on Amy Coney Barrett, at least in part on Amy Coney Barrett, specifically as it pertains to her faith and how she's being raked over the coals uh, by the left's handmaidens in the D.C. press corps, including a Villanova theology professor at present in advance of her likely, I think, nomination tomorrow and confirmation shortly thereafter. Raked over the coals based on her religious beliefs. That's what's happening at present. But let's uh, take a look at the sum and substance of her record on other issues important to individuals and their concerns about protection of their constitutional rights, like their Second Amendment rights. To help us do that, we're pleased to be joined by John Lott, president of the Crime Prevention Research Center, author of the recently released Gun Control Myths, How Politicians, the Media, and Botched Studies Have Twisted the Facts on Gun Control. John, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Great to talk to you. You uh, took a look at uh, the record on on Second Amendment rights of some of the shortlisters on President Trump's uh, nomination roster. What you find, I think, from reading your piece at RealClearPolitics.com, sort of my attitude about this, let's go with the person who has the clearest record on matters so that we know where he or she is and is thus likely to be going forward. You conclude that Barrett has the, the clearest record in defense of Second Amendment rights. Yeah, there's really no question. I mean, there are other judges who are under consideration really haven't had these types of cases. They may have a strong belief on this, but it's hard to discern. The thing that's clear about Amy Bear is not only has she written on this topic, but even her worst detractors concede that she's extremely bright and that my guess is that has a lot to do with their opposition to her more than anything that they might point to as far as her views go. My academic research indicates that the biggest opposition that you find to judges, because there's not a huge difference usually in terms of their political views, is how bright they are. I'll give you a simple example, and that is, my guess is it's pretty unlikely that you're going to be on any uh, juries. And there's a simple reason for that, and that is you're a very articulate, persuasive guy. And if the lawyers who were looking at the case thought that you were even slightly one way or the other likely to come out on the case, they would use one of their strikes against you as opposed to somebody else who they're more certain is against them, but it won't be able to go and pull other people on the jury panel. It's the same reason why lawyers object to other lawyers being jurors, because they know that the members of the jury pool will give 
a lot of deference to the views of a lawyer who's a, a juror. You have the same thing when you're talking about circuit court nominations or Supreme Court justices. The fact that she writes powerful opinions that are very well argued. And in fact, when one reads the Second Amendment case, that uh, this Cantor case, she in fact shows how inconsistent a lot of liberals have been on, uh, on this issue here. And it makes it hard for even justices on the other side or judges on the other side of the case to go against her. The Cantor case is interesting uh, because it, it can cut a couple of different ways, too, politically. I know that wasn't her point, but this 37-page dissent that she wrote in 2019, and it relates to a banning categorical bans on gun ownership for people with felony records, which was a feature both in Wisconsin, where this case emanated, and federal law. She argued that cannot be reconciled with Second Amendment jurisprudence. It's just interesting because, you know, a lot of people on the left would say, in terms of like criminal justice reform and, and people allowing ex-offenders to get their voting rights back, you wanting to have them reintegrate into society, be productive. And so that would also, there'd be a lot of people who say, well, they should have their full complement of constitutional rights back, too if they prove worthy of reentering society peacefully. In some respects, that decision becomes a decision that cuts a lot of ways politically. It's not really a Second Amendment argument per se that she's making. She's making an argument with regard to constitutional rights. She's saying that if you have a constitutional right, the government has to provide some evidence that the rule that they have that's going to be violating that right is related to what they are hoping to have the outcome. So in this case, she's saying, okay, the government's making the argument that banning people who have a criminal record from having a gun, uh, being able to own a gun, could be possible. There could be an argument to be made there. But she says, you know, it's one thing to go and ban people who have a violent criminal history of some type, whether it be a felony or a misdemeanor. Um, but she says, if you're going to be banning people uh, for all sorts of other reasons. When we come back with Crime Prevention Research Center's John Lott, Jr., I want to uh, talk about uh, the uh, particulars of the argument uh, Amy Coney Barrett made in her dissent in that, uh, that uh, Wisconsin case. More with John Lott right after this. John Law, and I wanted to, to uh, get back to uh, our discussion on Amy Coney Barrett's dissent in that uh, Second Amendment case and uh, that uh, emanated from Wisconsin, because I thought she made such a, a smart argument in her defense, because it's, it's really it really goes to so much federal law and, and state law, for that matter, which it's both wildly over-inclusive and under-inclusive simultaneously. And she she drills this out. Uh, noting what you were just noting, everything from mail fraud to selling pigs without a license in Massachusetts, redeeming large quantities of -of out-of-state bottle deposits in Michigan. These could be offenses that would 
uh, would, could be could rise to the level of felonies and thus prohibit you from ever owning a gun again. Uh, on the other hand, you can be dangerous even when you haven't committed a felony. For example, when you commit certain violent misdemeanors, which uh, wouldn't necessarily disqualify. So it's both over inclusive and under inclusive at the same time. And so this this precision, this call to be precise with language so that you're respecting uh, constitutional rights as much as is possible. You know, you're infringing upon those rights as surgically as is possible. And it sort of uh, requires uh, better lawmaking from legislators. And that's what the court's there to do. It's also she's saying just provide some evidence, you know, because anybody could say, well, you know, this is possible. And she's just saying for constitutional rights generally, you have to provide some evidence that what you're proposing is related to you know, what you're hoping to accomplish. Because otherwise, people could just say, okay, you, sh- you need to lose whatever constitutional right it is, just because we think that, for whatever reason, could arbitrarily think that this might work. We, we've talked a little bit about what's maybe coming before the court, some big issues coming before the court of the next term on religious liberty, on health care, Obamacare, on uh, race-based admissions policies. What about in the area of Second Amendment rights, uh, state laws that uh, may rise up to the level of the Supreme Court on which uh, her vote and and her arguments would be key. Right. Well, the Supreme Court hasn't dealt with Second Amendment issues for over a decade now. Right. And basically it's turned out it's because of John Roberts that you have had a very divided court. You have four Democrats who have wanted to overrule the existing precedent Second Amendment issues, saying that they do not believe that there's an individual right to self-defense, And if given the chance, they will go and argue that government, again, has the power to ban all guns, as Chicago did or Washington, D.C. did in the case of handguns. And then you have four Republican appointees who believe that there is an individual right to self-defense and have been concerned that the Democratic-controlled circuit courts around the country have been very lenient in terms of accepting any type of gun control law that the states pass. Then you've had Roberts, and I've talked to uh, uh, clerks on the Supreme Court, and they've told me that um, the Republicans there uh, have been not, have been wanting to bring up a case. There were 10 cases that they were actually considering granting what's called cert to this past spring, but they decided not to do it because just as Roberts has gone the opposite direction or with the liberals on all the religious freedom cases mm-hmm. recently mm-hmm. or on DACA or on Obamacare or on a whole range of other types of issues, um, they were convinced that if they brought up the case, any of those 10 cases, which dealt with a whole range of different types of uh, gun control issues, uh, Roberts would vote with the liberals in that case. So. Roberts is still on the court. Uh, Amy Barrett, if she votes with the, you know, the Trump appointees that are already there, uh, and Thomas and Alito, um, she would provide the fifth vote to provide a five to four majority to kind of rein in some of these circuit courts. I mean, people talk about all the judges Trump's put on the courts. He's put on 53 circuit court judges. But what they don't appreciate is that how far out of whack the courts were to begin with. With Trump's appointments, he's just been able to bring the courts into rough political balance. The Democrats still control the circuit courts for 24 states, as well as the District of Columbia, which is considered the second most important court in the country. 
and because it deals with all the regulatory issues. And uh, the states that the Democrats tend to control are the ones that are in these jurisdictions where the Democrats control the circuit courts. And they've been approving any of the gun control laws that these states have. Uh, you, know, the, you know, you look at California, for example, uh, they're on track under current law to effectively ban handgun sales within a few years. They right along with gas-fueled cars, yeah, right. And and if uh, and if the Democrats still control the circuit court there, and uh, and you have this type of gridlock on the Supreme Court, um, you know they'll be able to get that approved by the Ninth Circuit. Yeah. And uh, no, this is this is important. I mean, it's it's important you raise this because I I think uh, you have uh, gun owners that sometimes because there hasn't been any action in a decade, like you say, and because um, uh, Heller is uh, the settled law until it's unsettled, people assume that it's uh, not under assault and they shouldn't assume that, and this thus the importance of this nomination. Well, I mean, look at all the... I mean, if there's one issue that really clearly divides Republican and Democrat uh, judges, it's the Second Amendment. Just listen to Biden's comments within the last couple of weeks. Uh, he was at a town hall in New Hampshire where he was saying that he would, if he was a judge, he would vote to overturn the Heller and McDonald decisions. And he was basically explaining that what the Second Amendment does is guarantee the right of the government to have guns, not the right of individuals to have guns for right. self-defense. Right. And so, you know, People say, well, you know, they have to remove the Second Amendment. They don't have to remove it. They just have to redefine it to say that the Second Amendment only protects government ownership of guns and not individuals. And then they can go back to having it so that the government can completely go and ban guns as well as anything else. The Heller McDonald decisions were very narrow. The only thing that they accomplished was what the cases were in front of them. And that is whether government could ban all guns or an entire category of guns, like all handguns or all rifles. And, you know, that's a pretty simple case to say that they can't ban all guns. But, you know, there are all sorts of other regulations that make it very costly for people to be able to go and own guns for self-protection. Or they're going to revisit this, as I was saying, with, the, with what's happened under California law and the changes that are happening there. He is John Law, president of the Crime Prevention Research Center, author of the recently released Gun Control Myths, How Politicians, the Media, and Botched Studies Have Twisted the Facts on Gun Control. John Law, thanks for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Following up on our conversation with John Lott about uh, the prospect of uh, Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court as it pertains to uh, Second Amendment rights. How about uh, First Amendment rights and religious liberty? We've talked a bit about this big court uh, case in the next term. The Supreme Court's taking up Fulton v. Philadelphia. Um, that will have an impact on how religious liberty is treated under the law, protected uh, that first freedom along with the other first freedoms enshrined in the First Amendment. And uh, so the uh, the big news yesterday on the sort of COVID culture front was this woman being arrested at the Ohio 
middle school football game that we discussed, uh, tased and cuffed, right? But uh, something else happened that is part of COVID-19 culture, this brave new world where we uh, turn out uh, the predators and we turn over the streets to the anarchists and we imprison the business owner violating a lockdown order or, for example, the mom watching a football game or, for example, a few people at a church service singing uh, biblical psalms outdoors. Yeah. Police in Moscow, Idaho. Well, there that's aptly named, isn't it? Moscow, Idaho, starting to resemble another Moscow, arrested three people for violating social distancing rules as their church sang hymns and Bible psalms outdoors. This was an event held in part to protest the city mayor's mask mandate, of course. So three people were arrested. Video uploaded to social media shows uh, one of the persons arrested, a local music teacher, and his wife telling officers they refused to comply with some inaudible order that he uh, made. Okay, he refused to comply. You're going to be arrested. Okay. Uh, the apparent infraction was refusing to show identification. Footage from the couple's arrest shows the church body singing the hymn, Praise God for all, for, for, uh, praise God from whom all blessings flow as police officers place them in handcuffs. <laughs> There's a visual. Singing the hymn, Praise God, from whom all blessings flow, as you're being placed in handcuffs by police in Moscow, Idaho, for violating, arguably, the local violations of people's religious liberty and freedom of assembly while we're at it. Uh, the paper, uh, local paper, local outlet, saying that uh, the pastor there, uh, according to the pastor there, uh, the event was a statement against the city's largely groundless laws. Reverend Ben Zornes, Christ Church pastor organizer, said he uh, said the church hosts psalm or hymn events about once a month at places like where it was placed, where where this was held, um, to show residents to show that residents want a return to normalcy in the face of COVID nineteen. We wanted to make a statement: we're ready to head back to normal, uh, and it, that it's time to start pushing back against largely groundless laws that are being passed and enforced without giving heed to what residents want. Mom at that football game, these uh, congregants at this uh, church service in Moscow, Idaho. Brave new COVID-19 world. That's on the ballot on November 3rd, too. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thank you for joining us all this week on the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again on Monday. This is the Dan Prof Show.